Hello and welcome to Commonplace Expertise. Today we're talking to Leslie Sim. Leslie Sim is a marketer, an entrepreneur, and an ultimate coach, ultimate frisbee. In her day job, she runs Newsletter Glue, which is a WordPress plugin business that allows you to run newsletters throughout whatever WordPress blog you have through the most popular email service providers out there. So you basically can turn your WordPress website into the equivalent of a Substack. More recently, she was the coach for the Singapore Women's Ultimate World Championship team, and that's actually going to be the majority of our conversation today. She is a friend and amazing at pedagogical development, literally one of three coaches or teachers I know who are remarkable at pedagogical development. Now, I need to talk a bit about pedagogical development to sort of set up the conversation to explain why this might be interesting to you. So you probably have heard of something called deliberate practice. And if you're a longtime reader of the blog, you will know that the problem with deliberate practice is that it requires a body of knowledge, training methods to exist in the domain if you want to do deliberate practice. And what that actually means is that there has to be a period of pedagogical development in the field which is a collection of training methods developed through trial and error, usually by coaches, and then passed down from coach to coach or coach to player, right? And in many of the domains in which deliberate practice is possible, like chess and tennis and golf, there has been a long period of pedagogical development that has happened. And if you do not have that, like say you try to learn marketing or business or management, then you really cannot do deliberate practice. And this is important because deliberate practice remains the gold standard for practice in the world. So you can sort of see why I am very interested in coaches and teachers who are remarkable at pedagogical development, because they are the ones who push the possibilities of training in a field forward. And this is the context for my conversation with Leslie, because Leslie has this remarkable ability to come up with new training methods and to push the boundaries of training in her chosen sport, which in this case is ultimate. So I'm very honored to have this conversation with you, Leslie, and I guess we should get into it. So let's welcome Leslie. Hi, Leslie. (laughs) Hello. All the nice Um, things that you just said about me. (laughs) Yeah, this is a longer introduction than most. I think people listening to this, first question they might ask is, what's Ultimate Frisbee? And maybe we can start the conversation by talking about what is the sport of Ultimate Frisbee? I think another question people might be asking is, what does pedagogy mean? So pedagogy is the art or the science of teaching or, you know, teaching well. And there are lots of learning theories out there. And in this particular case, we'll be talking about training and teaching techniques in high levels of competition in ultimate. But pedagogy really exists everywhere else. Like if you take a math class, there is some pedagogy that the teacher is using to teach you math. And many people will believe that most math teachers have very bad pedagogy <laughs> because they hate math. <laughs> so, so yeah, that's the context of what pedagogy is. And pedagogical development is the effort of building and creating new training methods. So Leslie, what's Ultimate? <laughs> so Ultimate Frisbee is a team sport. It's mm. kind of fluid, like football in that everyone can run anywhere they want on the field. The field's approximately a third to two-thirds the size of a regular football field. And there are seven players on each team, and you score in a similar way to rugby or American football in that there's an end zone, and you have to cross the line of an end zone for it to count as a score. When you cross, if I may ask, when you cross, you have to catch it when you're in the end zone. Yes. Because you cannot run when you catch a disc, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. 
Okay, so you so, can't wow. you can't run with the disc. You run in, and then the disc is thrown and then you kind of catch it. So you can't run with the disc and you cannot move with the disc. You can establish a pivot foot and then you yeah. can pivot, but um, oh, that, wow. that other foot can't move. If not, that's a travel. And a- another thing that people are often interested in is that it's generally self-refereed. So meaning you are your own gatekeeper. So how it works is that say you punch me in the face, then I call, I call a foul and then you have the option to contest the foul. So if you don't contest the foul, then you know, the fact that you punched me in the face and I call a foul, so the foul stands and then it's a turnover. If you contest the foul, <laughs> then depending on what happened and who has the diss and all that, then the play actually continues. You might have to restart the play, but basically there isn't a huge disadvantage if you call a no contest. So you can see how spirit of the game and sportsmanship is quite important because it's completely possible to ruin a game by just going around punching people. Everyone's like concussed and then you're like no foul for everything, no contest for everything. And then you can win in that way, but it very quickly breaks the whole game. My goodness. So if there's a punch and actually that I mean, happens, that never actually happens. No, it, it doesn't happen. <laughs> but, but I mean, I'm just giving an extreme example. Yeah. This is really insane. How do you prevent, given this self-governing, Contacts, mm-hmm. right? How do you prevent yeah. it from turning into a debate match? <laughs> you're no, it, it happens. So I've had two really bad experiences. So there are these. This is concept of a spirit captain. Typically, their job is to regulate this whole problem of self referee. And so I've had this experience where the two spirit captains are standing on the field. One has brought out the rule book, a physical copy of the rule book, and they're arguing <laughs> while the game is going on, while the time is going on. <laughs> and it's, so that, that was horrible. So that was one experience that was really bad. And then the other experience was the other team got so violent, it actually got a bit scary to go on the field. They would be clothes sliding people and then they would contest the foul. So that means they disagree with the call. And the game just broke. And the amazing thing was that after the game, they still wanted to trade jerseys. So I think that's genuinely how they always play and they thought that it was (laughs) normal. And our entire team was completely dispirited, just like, that was the worst game of our lives. And they were like, hey, let's trade jerseys. This is really interesting, right? Because I think most people, if you describe the sport to them, like, oh, this is a sport of mm-hmm. ultimate. It's like football. They'll be like, oh, there will be a referee. And then you're like, no, there's no referee, which is surprising. So um, sort of, so there's a concept yeah. called observers, which you have at some higher level mm-hmm. games. So observers can tell you what they observed, but they can't enforce it necessarily. So they can't uphold anything that they've observed. It's up to the players to agree to uphold what the observer saw. My goodness. And if I'm not mistaken, the observer also takes time, right? Because in the World Championships, you don't want to have a debate match in the middle of... Yeah, so, so the observer <laughs> also tries to keep things moving quickly. Right. You've mentioned, and I know this is a bit of a tangent, but I think it's useful to talk about. You've mentioned that this is actually part of the ethos of Ultimate, and there's a philosophical bend to the self-governing aspect. Could you talk a bit more about that? Every player is a referee, so every player needs to know the rules. And to even sign up for a world championship, you're required to take a quiz to prove that you know the rules, and you're required to show your quiz completion certificate to show that you know the rules. That's Uh, insane. So that's number one. Number two, if you... Open the rule book. Page one of the rule book is spirit of the game. So this whole concept of sportsmanship is part of the rules. So being a good sportsman is in the rules, which I think is really cool. So it's really kind of inculcated and ingrained into the sport itself. And has there been a push to professionalize the game, to create referees? 
Yeah, in America, they have this thing called AUDL, which is a semi-professional disc league. And I think they have referees there. They have quite a few different rules. I guess most obviously the size of their field is bigger and they have referees. But I have never played AUDL. It's a professional league in America. So I can't say how their referees work. But yeah, that has been one of the ways to professionalize. I can't say I necessarily agree, to be honest, but... Yeah. Interesting. Why? I, I mean, I just think that the self-referee thing and the spirit of the game thing is such a huge part of the game. So when you remove it, it's like removing the spirit of the game. <laughs> You're removing this key part of the game and what, what makes it special. So I think observers, for example, is a really good balanced way to have some kind of impartial person without changing the way the game is played. Because the moment you have a referee... Then and this mm-hmm. is going to go into something that I hope we talk about later about like are you playing the game or are you yes. following the rules yeah so as part of the rules of the game the moment you have a referee for example in basketball right there are three fouls and then you get sent off and ideally you shouldn't have any fouls but because you have the referee then because you set three fouls so people count the three fouls as a part of a way to play the game right which is again if you're playing to win that you necessarily have to do that. But if you're trying to uphold the concept of spirit of the game and sportsmanship, then you shouldn't do that. And being self-regulated kind of encourages you to not foul someone purposefully. Whereas the moment you have a referee, then you've encouraged people to go as close to the line as possible. And like, how much can I get away with without the referee seeing? Mm-hmm. So the whole ethos changes quite a bit, I think. We, we will get to this for sure, since you brought it up. You were the person who actually gave me the whole concept of play-to-play versus play-to-win. You put the words to the concept. I was reflecting on, just to sort of go back to what you say about how the penalties become part of the meta game. Yeah, <laughs> uh, that's normal, right? Like it, it is normal. Sports, it's normal. Yeah. It, it is. And you're saying it doesn't really happen in, in, in Ultimate. Yeah, exactly. But there is because still a meta game. Yeah, but intentionally fouling someone as part of the metagame is so hugely frowned upon that most people don't do it. I mean, of course, there are going to be people and teams who do do it, but it's a big deal when teams do it. Maybe we should define the metagame. What is the metagame? <laughs> <laughs> Leslie? <laughs> uh, I, don't, I don't know. What is the metagame? Okay, I'll define it and then I would like to hear what the, okay. the metagame is in Ultimate. So the metagame, in my view, is the game above the game where the game is like the rules of the game where you're trying to win but then the meta game is like what strategies currently win and maybe there's like three or four strategies and right now the dominant strategy that everybody plays is this one and understanding the shape of the meta game understanding what the state of play is and the strategies that different teams use it's always an evolving thing and at any given point the optimal strategy might be you know slightly different from what it was last year so in practice over the course of your ultimate career what have you seen how has the meta game evolved So I should preface this by saying the last time that I played at a highly competitive level was 2016. And the last time I coached was, I guess, 2020. We Mm -hmm. got cut off because of COVID. And so any hardcore, like, been to multiple world championships, ultimate player listening to this might be like, oh, she's missed this and she's missed that. And the reason is because the last world championships I went Mm -hmm. to was 2016. So in my view, I would say that a lot of the metagame strategy and stuff hasn't changed drastically over the past 10-15 years. So there's only a handful of stacks that have kind of... Sorry, a stack is like a formation. So there's only a handful of formations that have stood the test of time. There's many that have come and gone. 
or some of the concepts of some of them have been infused into the ones that have stood the test of time. Uh, I think I don't know how to talk about this without going into so much detail. I'll understand? Do it. Go, go into the detail. Oh. It's okay. Okay, so one of the things that one of my favorite little things that I'm not sure if it's a meta game, but it's like this throw. So the Japanese. I would say maybe ten years ago or something, an actual Japanese player would be able to correct me. But so Japanese players or like Asians are tend to be shorter than Americans, right? Yes. And so they cannot compete just on straight lines, you know, like sprint, jump, catch, catch a disc and score. So you can't compete if you're just trying to do that. So what the Japanese did is they invented a throw that is curving away from the both the player and their defender. So that makes it significantly harder for the offensive receiver to catch it, but it also makes it significantly harder for the defense to defend it. And the one advantage that the offensive player has over the defense is that they firstly they know it's coming, and secondly they can train for it during practice. The other big problem with the throw is that it's extremely, extremely, extremely hard to do. Like it, I don't takes a good throw, maybe two, two, three years to get good at it and play it, use it in a high level game, and so. We we first started seeing it. I don't know, maybe again like five to ten years ago. It's it's very cool. So let's say again, I don't know how to explain it, but like, so let's say the throw is here and the yeah. person running is going towards the camera, right? Yeah. So ideally, what you want is the disc to just go straight, and then you run onto the disc and you catch it. So that's the most ideal. But that's the kind of thing that an American player might be able to outrun or outjump a Japanese, a shorter Japanese player. So that's not an ideal throw in. When you're going up against an American, so what they invented was a throw that goes this way. So you're running straight, and the throw goes here, and it kind of fades away this way. So you have to be able to fade away with the with the throw oh, and kind of catch it. <laughs> yeah, it's really really hard. So you have to time the fade of the run, because if you fade too early, then the defense knows, and then there's space for the defense as well to right. catch it. Have you ever used or played with somebody who could use who could do this throw? Yeah. So. I've I've had the luxury of playing with quite a few Japanese people, and yeah, so they they can you know because it's been in their culture and style of playing for years, so a lot of them can do it. Um, and so what what's been interesting is over time you see other countries try to adopt this throw. So I'd say Australians are pretty good at it now. They wow. are especially good at using it in the end zone, like shorter version of yeah. the throw. A handful of Singaporeans can do it. I haven't really seen that many Americans do it yet. Again, because their their style of play is more, you know, I'm going to be bigger, better, faster, and so you don't necessarily have to do this riskier throw that requires more finesse. And yeah, right. It's, it's um, a beautiful way of playing. Yeah, which we are going to talk about. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but just to sort of wrap up this section uh, as introduction to Ultimate, could you give a postcard or a small snapshot version of how you got into the game? The first time I ever touched a frisbee was. In Singapore, at a tennis court, randomly someone appeared with a frisbee. I was playing captain's ball, which is a variation mm. of netball and mm. popular in Singapore. And someone appeared with a frisbee, and I, it was really, really fun. And then I was studying in university in Sydney at the time, and so I joined the sport in uni, and then started playing in the leagues there in Sydney. So they have a lot of. Nighttime leaks, which is really nice. People actually get off at six pm or five pm in 
in nice. Australia and in Singapore. And so by 6pm, you can start playing already. So yeah, I played a lot of leagues there, which was really fun. And then I came back to Singapore, played a few leagues, and then joined a club team here in Singapore called Freak Show. And then I was part of that for maybe 10 years, 10 or more years, depending on whether you include the the time when I wasn't in Singapore. And yeah, so I played in three world championships, many international games, I don't know, maybe 50, 60, 70 mm-hmm. international tournaments, captained and coached for some of those years. And I think one of the cool things is that I've had the opportunity to play on a lot of teams from many different countries. And so understanding everybody's different philosophical approaches to the game makes me a more complete player, I would say, and coach. Everyone has completely different styles, which is very, very fascinating. Even the tournament structure is very different, which is fun. So in Japan, for example, they have a tournament where if you win, the the prize is a box of cabbages. Um, <laughs> because like the competition... <laughs> Because the tournament is held in this place where I think they're famous for their cabbages or something. So you win a box of cabbages. Have um, you tasted these cabbages? Are they really, no. really very good? No. <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't tried. I haven't tried. Okay. But yeah, so there's a whole bunch of different quirks and stuff, which is, which is pretty That's cool. That's so cool. Could you yeah. sort of give two examples of a style? When you said that mm-hmm. there's many different countries, many different styles. Could you talk a bit about like two styles, say? So my favorites are Japan and, uh, and Australia. So the Australian style is very... And again, this might have changed since I last played. Mm. But as of 2016, which is a long time ago, they have a very free-flowing style, which I really love. And it's heavily based on spatial awareness. So what that means is instead of having strict formations, American football style, they have like understanding of, okay, if you are here, then you know this is the, the next live space versus dead space. And this is where the the disc is flowing towards, and so I should either hit there with the intention of, you know, catching the next the next pass, or I should you know stay out of that way because my timing might be a bit off, and I don't want to clog the area. So when you watch them play, it looks if you're not familiar with that style of playing, it looks like madness. And it's if you are from a more regimented style of playing, it can be hard to kind of slot yourself in because no one will be able to tell you where to go at any given point in time. It's all based on feel and I think the reason why they play this way is because most Australians grow up playing sports grow up playing team sports and so they have you know if if by the time you play ultimate at the age of 20 you've had like 15 years or something playing netball or football or footy and things like that then Mm. you already understand space really really well and so you just kind of apply that directly into ultimate frisbee so that's been really really cool I really enjoy playing that way. And then the other style is Japanese. So I've only ever played with Japanese teams with a strong mix of Western influence. So I can't say that I know very strictly how Japanese Japanese team plays, but everything about it is slightly different. So the way that they... Okay, so the term that I'm going to use is dump, but basically what it is is when your disc is on the sideline, it becomes very squishy to try to progress the disc on the sideline, which is what mm. the defense wants and what you don't want. So you try to kind of bring the disc out from the sideline with like a kind of a little throw to you know get it closer to the center of the field. And that's called a dump. And most 
American or Singaporean or Western style of playing has a very specific way of dumping. And the Japanese angles and distances, which they would judge as ideal, are very, very different from the rest of the world. And then, like I said, they have that whole curving thing that they do. And they throw a lot more blades. So blades are like this that go up and down very aggressively. And it's for that same reason, if you can throw it like pinpointed and like straight to your head kind of thing, you like catch it there. It's hard to defend against, but it's very hard to throw. And it's very hard to throw accurately and it's even harder to throw in the wind. So yeah, it's just quite different. Obviously, the Japanese are quite regimented in the way they play and they have very, very specific people who do very, very specific things. Wow. Yeah, so completely different styles of play. Okay, that's brilliant. So we're talking about a sport at a very high level of play. And I think into the training pedagogical development section of this conversation is to sort of talk about the challenges that you have when you started taking on the Women's World Championship team, right? What was the starting point? And then you have to get them to this incredibly high level of play. And not all of them, I think, were experienced players, right? So could you talk a bit about like the story there? Uh, the story is I had retired from, from Frizzy for a long time <laughs> and they were looking for people to take on the mantle of coach and it's traditionally not something most people are keen to do. So mm-hmm. the problem with Frisbee is that it's not a professional sport so you're not paid to do any of it. So imagine you are coaching without even getting to play so you don't get the fun of playing, you're just coaching and you have to do it on a volunteer basis and a lot of times especially Singaporeans who are notoriously very complainy so they complain a lot so you're spending hours and hours of your time dedicating easily 10-20 hours a week of your time to coach a bunch of people who are complaining about your incompetence all the time so not a lot of people want to do it so they asked me I agreed to do it if I could get a handful of people because I had already been thinking about forming a women's team to coach for a while and the biggest story there is I feel like I've benefited a lot from the life lessons that I took away from playing ultimate both as a player and as a captain and as a coach so my thoughts there are that because it's amateur sport the barriers to entry are quite low anyone can join and also you know assuming that you've spent the necessary amount of time to work your way up it's not impossible to be put in a leadership position and again because it's an amateur sport people are unafraid to insult you and bitch about you and all of that and it sounds awful and it is when you're in the midst of it but it actually makes you a very good leader in the rest of your life because when you are in a job and you're paid and your employees are paid they tend to not say anything if something is wrong because they don't want to jeopardize their job. In comparison, if you're doing something for fun and you're not having fun, you're going to be very vocal about it. And as someone in a leadership position, hearing everybody being vocal about how much fun they are not having, you have to get really good at <laughs> so good. making sure people are having fun and improving. <sighs> so people start bitching very quickly if they feel like they're not improving, for example. So you have to be very, very good at, at all of those things and with relatively low repercussions if you're bad at it. So if you are bad at your job as a boss, you know you can either screw over an entire company at an extreme example, or you might you know, just cause your employees to have miserable careers and lives and all of that. And you probably won't even notice it. In comparison, if you screw up as a coach in Ultimate Frisbee, the worst case scenario is that they kick you off the team or tell you to step down as a coach. And it's not really that bad. So you get 
all of the good stuff. The good stuff meaning people complain and bitch about you all the time. But you get all the opportunity to improve yeah. without the consequences. And I think that is a formidable kind of combination when it comes to improving yourself as a person. So those are all the lessons that I learned from Ultimate Frisbee. And I felt that they make up a huge part of who I am as a person. And I realized that a lot of the teams nowadays don't approach Ultimate in that way. They don't really see Ultimate as a way to improve yourself. Like no life lessons are taught in the process. And that was upsetting to me to the core because that was such a huge part of what Ultimate was for me. And so I wanted to start a women's team to kind of show people what I've learned from Frisbee. And so that invitation to coach came at a good time and I decided to do it. I had in mind a couple of things that I, I wanted first. So like, I've been out of the scene for a while, so I was a co-coach who was more in the scene and more able to relate to people and stuff. And then I wanted a general manager and a few other things. And so we managed to put everything together and we started the team. Right. And to so- sort of set the stage, right? How did you set up the team? There were tryouts and then, mm-hmm. you know, people came for the tryouts and then what happened? Yeah, people came for the tryouts. Not as many people came as I would have liked, just because the whole thing was not very... It wasn't well run. So basically, I think the association was happy to not even send a world's contingent at all. So I wanted the women's team to happen for the reasons I just mentioned. And so I kind of pushed for the whole thing to happen. And then the mixed team. So in Ultimate, there tends to be women's teams, men's teams and mixed teams. So the mixed team also said, okay, we'll go ahead. We'll kind of piggyback on what you're doing. And then, okay, now I'm going to veer off into politics for a tiny moment. So some people said that you should join the mixed team because we can be more competitive there. And so a whole bunch of people joined the mixed team instead, even though they were just kind of piggybacking off of our campaign. Mm. And then we kind of had the people who were interested in either, like already knew about my approach, already knew about my co-coaches approach, or genuinely wanted to play women's. So they joined us. We basically took everybody that signed up for the tryouts. I think we started with, I don't know, 26, 27 players to begin with. Yeah. And it was a mix of skill levels, right? Some of them were very good, lots of experience, international experience, some with like zero international experience. Like, could they even throw? Yeah. So they could throw, but not, not well. I think our... Our least experienced player had been playing for eight months. In comparison, our most experienced player would have been playing for like more than a decade. Right. And so this is the hand you've been dealt. So what was the training program that you created then to deal with this? One of the the main things that I had to deal with was low self-esteem. I think this is quite common among Singaporeans to begin with. And then also, so traditionally in Singapore, mixed is like the main style of play. So most of the club teams in Singapore are mixed teams. And what happens then is that the women become second-class citizens on the field because just genetically, we tend to run slower, jump less high, all of those things, and also probably less vocal. And so they're told to do like the follow-up duty kind of role on the field. And so you have a whole bunch of women who have spent their Frisbee careers doing follow-up stuff. So they all don't think that they are good players. So objectively speaking, when you watch them play, they're actually really talented, but they think that they are not good. And also, like what I was mentioning earlier, the level of talent was varied significantly. So the job that I had to do to begin with was kind of 
level everybody, make the team kind of con- not consistent, yeah, but kind of at a more similar at a base level, level not, of skill. Yeah. 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 If not, it's very hard to play a team sport where you know you have a lot of people who can't do things. Yeah. So that's kind of where we started with. So we split our training into preseason, in season, peak season. Mm. So the preseason period was kind of my goal for that was more like to teach a couple of key concepts and also to get everyone to know each other so everyone was coming from different clubs with their own biases and their own training styles and I wanted people to get to know each other and just kind of get comfortable and want to start to come more for training so a lot of the things that I implemented were basically fixes from my previous votes experiences and my previous tournament experiences. So things that bugged me previously, I wanted to fix those things. So for example, one of my early votes experiences was people tend to not be that involved in their in the votes team as compared to their club team because the club team will kind of guilt trip them a lot and tell them like, oh, we're friends, how can you abandon your friends for this stupid world's team that's only going to be around for a short while? And there's just kind of a lot of politics around that. So I wasn't sure where it would go. So one of the early things that I did was we only trained fortnightly. And wow. I kind of wanted to see... For- yeah, so I kind of wanted to test the waters, get people used to it. And I was still in the preseason phase. It would not have been surprising to me if the whole thing would have been cancelled. I kind of fully expected it was always the possibility that the team would fall apart. And so I never wanted to push everyone too hard from the beginning because I thought that that might make it more likely that people fall apart quickly or burn out quickly. So for me, one of the indications that we were doing well was that people started complaining that we were training too little. I'm a big fan of paying attention to what people complain about rather than what people just do. So like what problems arise, those are the things that I pay attention to. So when people start complaining, you know, we're not competitive enough, we are not training enough, that indicates to me like, oh, people are quite bought in. They want to train more. And a bad indication to me would be people not showing up for training, saying, oh, fortnightly mm. is good, like being happy with fortnightly training. That's bad to me. So once I had those indications and more and more people started complaining about that, then I was like, okay, this is a good indication. We can move from the pre-season to the in-season. So one of the other things I did in the pre-season was kind of also remove two bad habits that women tend to have in playing ultimate, and that's lazy throws. A good throw would involve a full body. You would step out with your feet, there would be a strong core, you would go low and you would throw. A lazy throw is just kind of standing almost upright and just involving this part of your body rather than your entire body. So I... And how do you fix um, that? Okay, so I fixed it using this thing called clicker training, or for humans, it's called tag teach. So the origin of this is for? (laughs) The origin for this is for dolphins, actually. And it's for training animals to do tricks. So one of the women on the team was actually, she is a dog trainer. And so she suggested this thing, this clicker training, and she suggested that I try it. And the moment she said it, I was like, Yes, that sounds like an amazing idea. I can totally see how it fits in with my training approach. And and we implemented it. And yeah, so sure enough, the bad habits that tend to plague players for years, they just, just kind of disappear overnight. Yeah, exactly. Uh, could you explain how it works? 
Okay, so I'm not going to explain it well because I'm not an expert in this, but there are a couple of tenets of tag teach, T-A-G, tag. So the, the most important is that you have some kind of supplement that isn't your voice to... Okay, this is not the most important, but it's one of the, one of the important mm-hmm. things is... So you don't want to use your voice to be like, good job or yes, because traditionally those things mean so many more things other than a binary, you did it, you didn't do it. So like, good job, right? That term is so loaded. And as a player, you'll be like, was she being sarcastic? Did she mm. say good job? But the previous time she said great job. So was it not as good a job as the like the great mm. job? You know, and like which part of it was a good job? Was it because I did this or was it because I did that? So your voice and the words that you use are loaded because you already use those terms in daily communication. So you try to replace that with something like a clicker. In my case, I used an electronic whistle. And so the benefit of that is that it's very clear when it's mm. binary. Either there is a whistle or there isn't a whistle or there is a click or there isn't a click. And what you try to do is establish the exact thing that will cause the click to happen. So officially, this tag teach pedagogy style, the phrase they use is the tag point is. So for example, you would say the tag point is hands to disc, Mm. right? Or the tag point is straight arms. And so at the point at which they do it, you click, And so, yeah, exactly. It's very binary. So the player knows, I straightened my hands, I heard the click. Yes, I did it. So there's no additional politics involved in that. It's the neutral party saying you did or you didn't do it. Mm. Yeah. So I guess I I inadvertently kind of talked about the whole thing. Yeah. And And what was the tactic for this particular thing to stop lazy trolls? Oh, okay. So mine was when you are throwing the disc your arm needs to go below your knees. Yeah, so in the throwing motion, your hand needs to go below your knees. So the moment their hand goes below their knees, whether or not it was a good throw, that's like not the point, right? The point is that they need to not throw a lazy throw. So the moment the hand goes below the knees, then I would would keep, and then they would know that they've done it. So another important thing about tag teach is that you need to break things down into tiny observable and binary points, tag points. So if the objective is you want them to not throw a lazy throw, you cannot just say, don't be lazy or don't throw a lazy throw because that doesn't really mean anything, right? Or it means like a hundred different things to a hundred different people. So instead of doing that, you want to break it down to something that's objective, observable and binary. So it's super binary. Either your hand went below your knee or it didn't, right? And it's clear, you cannot say that your knee is actually your elbow. There's just no two ways about it. And you also cannot argue something like, oh, but look, the throw went well, right? Which would be a common argument if you just gave an instruction like no lazy throws. Because it'd be like, why not? I can throw a lazy throw if my throws are good. So I'm going to continue throwing lazy throws. And then it quickly devolves into this argument of when can you throw lazy throws? When should you not? And then it's just a mess. Whereas if you say the tag point is throws below your knee, Everyone's like, okay, cool. And then they immediately go and do it. And it's positively reinforcing. So meaning people are seeking to do the right thing. As compared to negatively reinforcing, where you've told them something not to do. So Mm. if you say no lazy throws, it leaves it open to a lot of interpretations of what the good thing is. I guess that's kind of what tech teaches. So with this technique, what were the results? 
And what would the results have been if you hadn't used TechTeach? So I can speak very easily about what the results would not have been. Basically, people would just continue to not do it. There's the players who have been playing for a decade and still throw lazy throws. Um, so the result is nobody would have listened, basically. They would have listened for a short while. Maybe one training session where I yell at people constantly to not throw a lazy throw. Maybe people would have stopped. And then after that, the next week, they would have gone back to it straight away. Right. So then the result of using this approach with Tech Teach is I completely eliminated all of it. I think after a couple of training sessions for the rest of the months after, like nobody threw lazy throws ever again. Insane. I think one of my reactions when you first told me about this was that it's incredibly compelling because if I'm a player and I'm running, you know, I'm playing the game and then every time somebody throws, there's a beep. There's like, oh, the coach approves, right? And then I throw and then yeah. there's no beep. And I'm like, what? I need to do? what, what? Yeah. Why? Oh, I hit you. The next time I'm going to make sure that I'm going to throw below my knee. It is so compelling. It sort of triggers, it's, it's below cognition, right? It's at a very animal level. <laughs> yeah. And because you've given it so clearly and you, it's either beep or no beep, it's self-reinforcing. So exactly what you said, right? You're like, okay, I'm going to do it the next time. Didn't get, I didn't hear the beep, where's the beep? I'm going to show you how low I can go, that kind of thing. And you don't ever have to tell anybody, you don't have to scold anybody, they're doing it for themselves. Well, it kind of is for themselves, but I wonder if there's a social element to it as well. Because when you're playing in the entire team, right, Mm. the team can tell, oh, this guy, he didn't throw properly because there's no peep. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's true. (laughs) This positive reinforcement thing is really interesting. One of the things you said to me was, it's very important to just reinforce positive behavior and not punish negative behavior. And... I think one of the training interventions that you told me about that I was amazed by was this whole attack the disc thing. Could you talk a bit about that and then segue into like, why positive reinforcement? Why is it so important to just reinforce positive behavior instead of punishing negative behavior? Okay, to be honest, I can't remember what I told you about the attack the disc thing. But attack the disc is a common newbie thing where you are slightly afraid of the disc because it's coming at you and you slow down instead of going to the disc and attacking it at full speed because you are scared that you drop it. So like rule in Frisbee is that if you drop a disc, it's a turnover. The other team gets it. So you don't want to drop the disc. So it's a high-risk thing to drop the disc. And so people would rather slow down and catch the disc carefully than speed up and aggressively catch the disc. But that's good at a low level and I think people are often told at a low level to slow down and catch the disc carefully, which is why they do it. But at a high level, the assumption is everyone can catch the disc. And Mm. so you can't slow down because the defense will be a lot better at a high level. So you have to run full speed and attack the disc. But because people are kind of conditioned with this whole, I need to be careful to catch the disc thing, they always prioritize that instead of speeding up. And it's hard to get them to get out of that paradigm of top priority is to catch a disc. So what I try to do is push them, like completely reframe the paradigm. So instead of worrying, I addressed the fear of not catching the disc head on by telling people, don't even worry about catching the disc. I want you to run straight at the disc at full speed and it's okay if it just falls on the floor or something. And so like that kind of forces people to like so far away from the old paradigm that they are kind of forced to abandon it almost and that Mm. breaks open the opportunity to learn new things 
if I'm not mistaken, you also celebrate it. When you originally told me this, you were like, people say attack the disc and it's not very useful. What I tell them is mm-hmm. if you run towards the disc and it hits you, even if you don't catch it, right, we will cheer for you. And- yeah, so that's like a tag point thing. So you want to be clear about what you're tagging, right? So the tag mm-hmm. point is to run at the disc at full speed. The tag point isn't to catch the disc. So when you run at the disc at full speed, regardless of whether you catch a disc or not, you get a beep. And so people are encouraged to do that. So one of the things about TechPoint is that you want to break a bigger objective into smaller parts and be careful about the ordering of the parts. So if I had done it wrongly, I would say the TechPoint is to catch the disc and then after that, try to get people to speed up. Hi. Whereas by reversing it, turning it on the head and saying the TechPoint is to run at the disc at full speed, then they do that first. And likewise How? with the throwing one, right? Like the no lazy yeah. throw. So I beep at them going below the knee. I don't actually care what the throw looks like. Yeah. Why is it so important to reinforce positive behavior instead of punishing negative? I think, like most Asians, we would be like, oh, negative, like must punish. <laughs> so the pu- punishing behavior doesn't actually help teach anything because it tells someone what not to do. It doesn't tell them what to do. So you haven't actually given them new information. You've just told them, don't do this again. So puts the learner in a defensive state of mind and when you are in a defensive state of mind you cannot learn you cannot go forward so i wish i had a good analogy for this but okay i know so imagine you're playing super mario right and you're scared of dying and so you crouch down and you say nothing it's like yes correct you haven't died but you also haven't completed the level the only way you can complete the level is to move forward right and if you scold someone and you've made them afraid of dying, then all they're going to do is crouch and stay in that corner and not die, which again, is not wrong. It's correct that they indeed haven't died, but they haven't moved forward either. And when you're coaching, when you try and teach someone something new, they necessarily have to move forward. They can't just stay in the same fetal position because you know they haven't learned anything. So I would say that there is time and place for making someone stay in position and not move. But then within the context of trying to teach someone something new, that's the worst thing that you can do. So you want to create an environment where they are constantly seeking, where they're constantly being like, should I do this? Should I do that? What should I do? That's kind of the environment that you want to create, like this forward motion environment. And so doing everything you can to create this forward motion environment, including positive reinforcement, is really really important and hence yeah you never want to do negative stuff so okay a good example i was reading the tech teach book so kids at um recess time like little kids they're all meant to stand in a line before recess then like stand up straight and they all go for recess but then the problem is because they're all young kids right so they are pushing fidgeting playing and all that so the tendency is for a teacher to say stop fidgeting stop moving stop doing this stop doing that And so a kid will be like, okay, you've told me to stop pulling the hair, so now I'll poke my friend's back. Or you've told me to stop pulling the t-shirt, so I'm going to tickle them instead. And then the teacher scolds you, you're like, yeah, but I've stopped doing the thing that you've told me. And so it's not actually helpful to give instructions like that. So instead, what the book said is, you say the tag point is hands on hips. So all the kids now put their hands on hips. And so that's a positive thing, right? And it's like, you can, you actually cannot poke and tickle and pull and all of that if your hands are on your hips. And it's a very clear instruction. You've 
directed the attention to this very, very specific thing that you want them to do. And they all now want to do it because they get to hear a beep when they do it. It's like, oh, you know, I've like, my, my hands are first. I put my hands on my hips first. And then immediately everyone's like perfectly behaved. And then they can all go off to recess as a perfect line of well-behaved kids. So uh, it's wow. learning about which, yeah, right? It's amazing, right? So learning about what kinds of tech points to use is super important. Right. And so this book is by Karen Pryor? Is this it? particular book was not, but I read Karen Pryor's book as well. Right. So I'm going to link to both in the show notes, listeners, if you're listening. I think what's an interesting sort of segue here is... When we met earlier, you told me how your fundamental training philosophy is you want to create this forward motion of searching. I'm probably messing up the exact words you use, but I don't believe I fully understood it then. And this is the underpinning of your entire training approach, right? Could you talk a bit more about that? Yeah. Okay. So my personal website is leslie.pizza and the title of that site is Failing Forward. And it's again with this forward motion. I guess, I guess it is kind of what I just said about the Super Mario game, like trying at all costs to avoid someone being scared to figure something out or trying to avoid people from doing smaller and smaller optimizations when mm-hmm. those optimizations, yes, they might be incrementally better for a specific thing, but look at how much more you have to learn and how much more opportunity there is. And... I think a lot of Singaporeans tend to be very optimize They want to stay in their lane mm. and do the thing that they've been told and try to incrementally do it better rather than be curious about life and be curious about what's out there and search and be okay with the fact that it's super messy and you have lots of unknown and all of that. And... I think you can learn so much faster and in a happy and curious and playful way if there's an environment of forward motion, of seeking, of positive reinforcement and where failure is not necessarily acceptable, but it's embraced, like it's understood as like failure is inevitable. And yeah, so when you create that kind of environment and people experience it for the first time, it can be life-changing and it really teaches you how to learn for yourself. And I guess that's kind of the environment that I wanted to create for people on mm. the team. Could you give an example, apart from the whole tech teach thing, which is sort of in line with this, what is another example of how do you create this forward motion? Okay, so another example is in Frisbee, it's typical to play mini games. So for example, a typical game would be a game to, I don't know, 21 or 14 or 17, something like that. And that can take an hour and an hour and a half. And then you wouldn't have enough time to explain things or like do specific things. And so you can create instead a game to three. And then the objective for that game to three is, you know, offense always starts with the disc or whatever it is that you want to do. So like game that's kind of like... Game to three wins. Oh, th- oh sorry, three, three points. Yeah, so score oh, three okay, points. Okay, got it, got it, got it. Yeah. Sorry, I should have explained that better. No, no worries. Um, and then, and so there's lots of different ways and permutations to play with this concept. So a negative one, the one that results in the Mario crouching and not moving, would be 
any drop disk results in 100 push-ups, for example. And Ooh. so that makes people scared to do new things, right? They are just, their goal is to not fuck up. And so you play too conservatively, you can't do new things, you can't learn, you're just trying to not fuck up. So a, a way to kind of do the forward motion thing is like, I would say throw 100 passes. So the, the game is to throw 100 passes and turnovers don't matter. So if you turn over, you just pick up the disc and continue. And then you have to give instruction or a tag point, like you know, 100 passes. And then, then I would pair that with the tag point of throw beneath your arm needs to go below your knee. And then people get a lot of reps because it's 100 passes for the entire team. So you have a lot of reps, a lot of like throw beneath the knee and no fear of fucking up. So people can go and do it and try. It's fine to try and not hear the beep, right? Then all that matters is you try to get the disc again and then do it again and then hear the beep next time. This is almost a so. meta level above the, <laughs> you know, it's like the approach itself is positive. And then the tech teach point is also positive yeah exactly so like you want to create a environment where everything is in sync with this whole positive forward motion seeking kind of thing i think it's a very common novice coaching mistake to get frustrated and then call out mistakes and be very angry about the mistakes whereas your approach is very much like no i'm going to look for positive behaviors that will make you more effective and then i will run the program so that you get to those positive behaviors Okay, so to be clear, there's also a time and place for the negative stuff. So if you recall, we had the pre-season, the in-season, and then mm. the peak season. So my plan was for the peak season to be the time where you'd be like, oh yeah, one turnover equals 100 push-ups kind of thing. Because at that point, you've learnt all the things you want to learn, and now the time is for optimizing. So now's the time where you can't fuck up anymore because you're meant to right. already know what you need to know. And at some point, you do have to get there because if you're playing a competitive sport, there are actual consequences, right? When you throw a disc away, you lose the game. So you also want to mimic that. It's just that you need to be very careful about what you're teaching and, and pairing the teaching methods to the thing that you're trying to teach. So for me, what I was trying to do is slowly increase the pressure. So kind of like the boiling a frog in a pot thing. So at the start, training is only every two weeks and it's not very intense. People complained about it. And then as we kind of moved into the peak season, we got to a point where training was very, very intense and the standards were a lot higher. And um, we did do things like every turnover equals don't know. And then people were doing an insane amount of burpees at the end of each training. Yeah, and I guess that's kind of the ideal. But I did, sorry, can I just, I also wanted to talk sure. a bit more about the positive reinforcement stuff. Sure, sure. So the other thing that I did there was... Um, for me to take a step back as a coach. So oftentimes, coaches want to assert their dominance to show how smart they are, or how experienced they are, and why players should listen to them. For me, I actively tried to act dumb and take myself away from the conversation so that they would have to come up with ideas. And I wanted to give people the feeling of the safety net was taken away from them and it was up to them to figure things out for themselves. And again, I did that because going back to the, the what I said like super early on about Frisbee being this like great place where you can fail and the consequences are not that big. But then at the same time, you can try lots of cool stuff and have quite a lot of responsibility. So I wanted to give people that experience because like, it's hard to have that experience at work, right? Like your employer is really only going to promote you when they are confident that you can already 
be a manager or be a boss or whatever because the consequences there are quite big if you get promoted into a position that where you sink um in contrast in frisbee like sure i can promote you to whatever it is that you want and if you fail then the worst case scenario is that we have a crappy tournament and it's not that big a deal no lives are going to be screwed over by that and so i was constantly trying to promote people who didn't feel like they were ready so i made a whole bunch of people line captains so each line has 8 to 9 people and i was like put people as captains and then we had team captains as well who had never been team captains before and everybody was melting down left right and center they were all like i don't know how to be a line captain i don't know how to be a captain i don't know how to do this i don't know how to do that and i was like it's fine <laughs> what's the problem here so i would kind like of let them melt down yeah um, oh my goodness. <laughs> yeah, so I let them melt down and hate me. And they were complaining constantly that there was a lack of guidance. And as far as I was concerned, that's a good problem to have, right? Because I wanted to give people that feeling of no safety net and for people to kind of come through at the other side of it, you know, learning how to, to do these things themselves. Um, so I think some people really didn't like it, but I was okay with that because, again, what's the worst that could happen, right? Like we would just have a less fun tournament. And the result of which, when they do get promoted or they become a manager for the first time, they're like, oh, I've experienced this like fucked up no safety net position before when I was a line captain at this horrible team that I really hated being a part of. But to me, that was a great trade-off. Um, and again, that gives them this positive forward motion of like, oh shit, how do I become a captain? How do I learn this stuff? There's no one telling me how to do it. I better figure it out for myself. And so as a result, there were a lot of line captains who became really, really good friends because they were talking amongst themselves all the time because they had no idea what was going on. I wasn't giving them direction, so they had to figure it out. Um, and yeah, so like for me, that was you know a bit evil, but it was fun. So your approach was very much... You really did not care that much about the results of the tournament as long as they got a huge amount of life lessons out of that. Am I getting that right? Okay, yes and no. So, like, a good life lesson is learning how to win and playing at a high level of intensity where the pressure is really high and winning. So, you know, winning does matter, and I also mm -hmm. would love to teach them that, but it's what, what you can teach at the time. So, at the time of in-season, it's like, these are the things that are acceptable. And then as you go to peak season, then sure, I would have to tighten a bunch of things. But, you know, until we get to that point, I'm okay for everyone to feel like they're floundering. I think that's something useful there. I don't think many people in businesses, especially with regiments in businesses, they won't think in terms of like seasons, whereas this is very common in professional sports. I, I was a competitive judo player, but even then we didn't really have seasons. But then when I listened to one of the more serious, good international judo coaches, they always talk about how we divide their training system into seasons. And I do wonder maybe one of the benefits of that is that you can be very clear with yourself okay it's okay to fail and mess up and do experiments in the earlier seasons and then we only go into optimization and tighten mode at the very last bit yeah and so like some of the cool things as a result was you know that idea that like if you bred an animal in captivity then you bring the cage out you put them in the middle of the jungle and you open the cage they just stay in the cage because all they've known their entire life is the cage mm. so there was a bit of that going on on the team as well like on day one when they joined my team, they've only ever known captivity. They've only ever known a coaching environment where people are really strict and always telling them what not to do and how to not fuck up. Um, 
So when I open the door for them and tell them, like, actually, you know, on my team, you can do almost anything you want, everyone just stays in the cage. And they pretty much stayed in the cage for, like, the first five months. And it was only towards the end as we were reaching the peak season and reaching the height of COVID that people started to kind of get out of the cage, realize that they could leave the cage. And it was really cool. So one of the problems that people started talking about was like, oh, there's a lot of talking during training, right? We're talking too much. It's a waste of time. But that to me is a great symptom of the fact that everyone's starting to leave the cage. They're realizing we can discuss amongst ourselves. We don't have to wait for the coach to tell us exactly what to do. Let's troubleshoot ourselves. Let's figure things out. So, you know, the thing that people complained about then was like, yeah, too, too much talking during training. There's like 100 people, 100 conversations going on. But that to me shows the success, the sign that everyone has left the cage and everyone's starting to figure stuff out for themselves. So I was, I was like really, really proud and happy about that actually. To sort of reorient a bit to another aspect of your training, which I found quite remarkable, you talk to me a little about finding desirable problems versus undesirable problems. I don't know if I'm phrasing it right. In my memory, you're like, good problem to have versus bad problem to have, right? Good and bad, they're words with many meanings, so maybe desirable and undesirable is better. Could you talk a bit about that, though? Yeah, so it's kind of similar to what I just talked about. Like, a desirable problem to me is one where it's a problem in the direction of your goal. So there's like progress. Okay, so an undesirable problem would be if people are still not talking amongst themselves, waiting for instructions and complaining that I wasn't giving enough instructions. So that's an undesirable problem. A desirable problem is when people are now complaining that there's too much conversation going on. You know, people are talking amongst themselves too much because that progression shows that people have now gone out of their cage. I guess the thing that people don't really think about or appreciate is that there's always going to be problems. There will never not be problems. You're not going to have a perfect team. You're not going to have a perfect company. People are never going to be so fulfilled in their jobs that they will just come to their jobs every day, feel blessed, and then leave at night, right? That, that just doesn't happen. Yeah. So there will always be problems. So you want to be very careful about what kind of problems you propagate and you want to use the problems as like a leading indicator for the health of your company or the health of your team. So if a problem is persistent, that's an undesirable problem because it indicates that you or your team or your company is not progressing. Um, generally speaking, if it's a new problem, it's better than an old problem, but obviously some new problems are also bad. So another problem, like if we take it back a bit in the pre-season, before really starting training, people complained a lot about lack of quality on our team. Like we had really inexperienced players. There was a big gap in experience and skill. So, okay, that's like the benchmark, right? But then after a while, people stopped complaining about that. And then they started complaining about me. They started complaining that I wasn't giving them enough guidance. And they would dismissively say things like, sure, you know, so-and-so has now gotten a lot better, but the team hasn't improved. Not realizing that the fact that it's a new problem and the fact that they can now dismissively say that these weaker players are now a lot stronger and we don't even have to worry about these things anymore. Like they don't realize that that's a great thing, right? The fact that they can now move on to new problems, they don't realize that that's amazing. So like, 
watching out for what people are complaining about is is really really good. So okay, so another favorite example of mine is during COVID, the transition mm. of a lot of companies from in in person to remote. So a bad problem would be an increase in meetings. People would be like, I want a Zoom account, or my calendar is really full now, you know, things like that. So that would be a bad problem because that's the same kind of problems that you have in person, only you've brought it online, right? So instead of like, hey, can we grab a coffee? Now you have to book a calendar event and um, have your meeting then. So that's a bad problem. A good problem is now people are saying things like, you've told me to use Notion. I hate Notion. I've heard of Coda. I want to use Coda instead. You know, you told me to use Jira. I hate Jira. I've heard about this thing called Linear. I want to use Linear instead. You know, hey, everyone's writing documentation now, but it's so fucking messy and certain people can't write well. So I hate reading their documentation. Those are good problems to have because that indicates that people are moving towards the remote async style of working. The problems they have are remote problems. So it's that progression of problems. So if you see those problems, yes, they are still problems because all companies, everything has new problems that you will face. But you want to make sure that the problems are desirable in the direction of where your company is headed. I think people always talk about how everything has problems and you just have to pick your poison, right? Or the recent conversation we had this morning about how Ben Horowitz was saying that in a large company, the company's always broken in some horrible way and it's your fault and you can't do anything about it. And this is one very usable frame, I think, as entrepreneurs or people in companies to use. But I also want to bring an instantiation of this philosophy that you actually pointed out to me, I guess it was months ago at this point, where you sort of said one example of this, although this is a very small example, and the philosophy is more important than the example, so I do want to make that clear to listeners. But the example you gave me was, in Ultimate, one problem that a lot of players have, if they're novices or intermediate level players, they have difficulty deciding who to throw to. The exact scenario is something like they're about to throw and something they were expecting, like this person has to be in that point, doesn't happen. And then now they can't decide. And in Ultimate, you have like a 10-second time span, right? Where the defender comes to you and then starts (laughs) counting down, (laughs) which is another example of the self-governance aspect of Ultimate, which I found mind-blowing, like 10, (laughs) 9, 8, 7. And if if it hits one, right, then the the turnover happens. You have to hand this over to the other team, right? Yeah, it's the other way around, but yeah. Oh, it's the other yeah, way around. You start, you you start from one. One, yeah. two, oh my yeah. goodness. And then when it hits 10, then... Oh. Yeah. And people panic, right? Especially yeah. if they're not experienced players. They're like, oh my God, it's nearly 10. Let me just make a stupid throw. And you had a way of solving this, which was like, oh, you're replacing this bad problem with a better problem. Do you want to talk about that? <laughs> yeah. So the bad habit is that you tend to either get tunnel vision. So there's like your... Cutter, so cutter is like the receiver person. So you expect your receiver to run in a certain way. And either their timing is off, so they're a bit slow, they're not there yet. And then you wait for them because you have 10 seconds, which can feel like quite a long time. So you wait for them for too long, and then now the timing is weird. And then after, you know, when it's like stall count 7 or 8 or something, you turn and try to do some other pass, look for your second option. But often that's like too late. And the flip side, from the receiver's point of view, because they have 10 seconds, they they might start at 0 or 2 or 3 even, start running, which is, again, too late. So I removed all of those problems by just uh, 
artificially and arbitrarily saying that for our team, our stall count is always six. So whether we are at training or even at games, so if we are playing against another team, they might stall us to 10, but in our minds, the stall is six. And so we have to get it off by six. And that removes all of those problems immediately. So they don't even have the opportunity to get those bad habits. So typically, traditionally, you would look for your second option at stall count six. For us, you would have to look for your second option at stall count two because it takes about four seconds for the second option to develop. So what that means is your first option has to start at like minus two or minus three in order to be a viable option at zero because you have zero and then you have about two seconds to kind of identify, lock on and throw. And then again, your second option has to kind of start being in position at stall count one or two so that at stall count two, they are ready to initiate the second option. So it it creates like so many good things immediately. The flow of the game is significantly faster, which is very, very helpful because the faster the disc is changing hands, the more confusing it is for the defense because they need to pay attention more, which is always tricky. It improves the thrower because the thrower has to, you know, they have to be very focused to either throw that disc at stall count zero, one or 2, or move immediately, figure out what's your second option, get that off. And most importantly, it improves the skills of the cutter because now you don't have the 10 seconds to fuck around anymore. So your timing has to be really, really on point. And often cutters have really lazy timing, I think, because of this 10-second rule. I used to play netball where the, the stall count is 3 seconds. So I never understood why you needed 10 seconds anyway because in netball, the whole game is played with 3 seconds. So clearly it can be done. It forces people to have better timing, make smarter decisions be on point at a better time and yeah if i was a coach right in your shoes i would not have thought of this immediately i would have oh you know how do i train the ability to build a second decision (laughs) you know build two plans at the same time like not be so picky or tunnel vision how do i train you cognitively which is a really difficult that's what everyone normally does yeah yeah right like i will think about oh is there some exercise i can do to train everybody to be in this mind state and not everybody can do it some people naturally can some people cannot all these are really difficult training problems and you're like no screw that i'm just going to replace all those training problems and avoid it completely by replacing it with this and then i have a new set of problems that are sort of better and easier to train for easier because you now have the problem of like you need to run faster but then i think no it's not run faster the timing has to be better yes so so there's no white space there's no gaps in between run time or decision time right and this is harder but also easier to train for and it's a better problem to have for your overall game. And I was so mind blown by this. I was like, are there things in my judo game where I could completely avoid if I train some other thing? So I think actually for me, that story, the takeaway for me there is more a lesson about constraints, applying the right constraints mm. to end up at the solution that you want. So what I mean by that is I try not to... So okay, so remember how you were saying like, yeah, we don't want to have the tunnel vision so you try to teach people this cognitive thing and it's very deliberate (laughs) and all this thing right so like when you tell people these things and you know to take a page from your book about your hatred of deliberate learning right if you tell people to explicitly about this kind of stuff then they focus on it and they are not actually trying to solve the problem they are just trying to not do tunnel vision so you don't want to tell them what not to do what you want to do is just kind of create the necessary constraint so that they can problem solve around the constraint to get to a solution that you want. 
So how do I explain? Okay, so in advertising, for example, so my background is in advertising and people famously talk about how constraints make a better campaign, like the right constraints. Mm -hmm. So, you know, because we were doing this thing and we only had $5,000, we couldn't do this crazy thing. So we had to come up with a better idea. And then because of that constraint, that allowed us to create this amazing idea that ended up really helping the company market themselves well. And I think the same thing applies here. So you don't necessarily want to spoon feed and tell people exactly what to do or what not to do and all that. You just want to create the constraint and then kind of let them problem solve themselves and figure things out themselves. And then they're going to arrive at the solution that you want, but they will have felt like they arrived at it themselves and they will have the benefit of gone through that problem solving thing themselves, gone through that figuring things out themselves because, you know, it's a blank space aside from that constraint, you know, that fence that you've placed, like the rest of it is just mm. a, a green field, right? They can do whatever they want inside that constraint. And yeah, so I really, really like setting up drills or setting up things in this way. So they can't really fail because you've set up a good constraint and then they figure things out themselves. They learn more deeply. Right. So... I think there's like three more questions. We're going to go slightly over time, so don't worry about it. But I want to ask another aspect of your training, which you've talked about, is like you do drills and you do simulations and you do nothing in between. And I found that quite interesting. Could you talk a bit about that? My Japanese friend who lived in Singapore for a while, he was a teammate of ours and he sometimes can talk a bit about how he doesn't like the Japanese style of rigidly doing drills. So Japanese drills look very beautiful. They're very, very intricate and you see them running and it looks like clockwork and it's amazing. It's very, very beautiful. But it doesn't necessarily translate into the game. So for ultimate players who might be listening to this, a good example of this is the mushroom drill. So mushroom drill is this very, very popular ultimate game. It's often used as a warm-up in tournaments. The movement, the flow is very nice and all that, but it's completely not related to gameplay or game movement at all and people use it all the time and yeah so there's not much point in teaching drills where the end goal of the drill ends up inevitably being how nice can it look how like clockwork nice can it look there's not much point in that so what I try to do is teach the very basic skill so kind of like a snapshot of a game there's this like thing or bad habit or or sequence that I want to teach so we'll drill that a lot and then we don't try to add anything beyond that so there's always a temptation of okay we've captured this snapshot then we're going to string a few more snapshots together and then it looks more and more like a game but I find that that always leads to too much things going on mm-hmm. and it always sounds nice in the head but then once you actually do it players get confused very quickly so I try to just keep it as that snapshot and then we move immediately to the mini games which is like that 100 passes turnovers don't matter kind of thing that I mentioned and so a good example would be like we would do a snapshot where your goal is to throw a specific throw like to throw off the sideline with that low release throw beneath the the knee thing so we do that a whole bunch of times and then after that we move to the game where your goal is to do that low release and so you get the fluidity of the game so they get that feeling of like trying to do the skill in the game and then you get that 
and you don't get anything in between. Yeah, I, I see this in other sports as well, and I'm sort of reflecting. Like my big hatred actually is traditional Japanese judo training techniques. Not not to speak too badly of Japanese pedagogy. <laughs> it just so happens that judo started in Japan and it's hundred years old, and I'm always incredibly irritated by the whole. In, in judo, at least, these drills that are basically... It's called uchikomi. But like uchikomi is basically you do the motion without actually doing the throw. So you stop right before the throw. And I know a coach in KL, right? There are lots of similarities between the way that b- both of you approach pedagogical development. He's very irritated by that because he's like, if you keep training a hundred times or a thousand times, which in a normal, like as an athlete, like a thousand times in a week is very little. It trains your muscle memory for not the full motion of the throw. And you, you just stop right before you finally finish the execution. And this can actually trip you up, right? So you should practice the full motion of the throw. And that's why in Europe, they have these incredibly fluffy and large crash pads so that you can actually throw the person without harming the other person, right? Whereas in Japanese dojos, they usually are not that many crash pads. And so this is necessary because otherwise you get thrown a hundred times, you'll be very sore. Anyway, 100%, I think... I now wonder in, in, in business or marketing or whatever what the equivalent of this is where you've got basic skills and then you've got simulations of real-world use but then nothing in between because like you say, it's really hard to sort of do transfer of skill from training to... <laughs> I don't know if it's possible at all in career situations but I've been thinking about this ever since you told me about this approach. I'm not sure. I would say maybe... And okay, I'm not a developer but I've heard companies who... On day one, let people, what was the term called? Like, put something into... Production. Ship. Yeah, production. Push yes. production. Yeah, yeah, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, like on day one. So I feel like that would be a similar approach. I so, you know, obvi- obviously it. it wouldn't let them do like something massive, but that feeling of pushing something to production on day one really sets the tone for everything. Yeah. I think, yeah, I think there's something there as well. Uh, I wonder what the marketing version of this, like from day one, you push on an ad of like a $5 budget. <laughs> yeah, maybe, but... I don't know. I don't know about that. Write a blog post that like, gets that, published on day one, maybe. That might be doable, yeah. yeah. I think so. What is a... Could you say what is a good drill in your view? Like, what properties should it have? Oh, this is tough. I think a good drill... Or maybe I should reverse the question and ask my favourite question, right? What, what would a novice <laughs> get wrong when they're coming what, up with a drill? When they're coming up with a drill... Yeah, so I guess the novice will always pick the, the one that looks beautiful, like the routine, you know, the <laughs> clockwork routine one. Almost all novices pick that because it, it really looks very beautiful when it's executed well. Yeah, but I don't think that, that necessarily tells you what, what is a good drill. That just tells you what's a bad drill. I think a good drill might be one that has a very specific point to teach, like a very, very specific throw. Yeah, so a drill that doesn't try to combine too many things. And also well-constrained, I would say. So one of my favorite drills is a super simple drill. It almost doesn't seem like a drill, actually. It's 100 throws in, I don't know, I can't remember the timing now, but let's just say three minutes. So 100 throws in three minutes. And the constraint is the 100 throws in three minutes, right? And because you've set that constraint, people have to throw very accurately and very fast. Mm. If you throw slow throws, which you know go all over the place, you can't actually hit the 100 throws because you're spending too much of your time going all over the place trying to pick up the disc wasting time and so it's a very simple drill people don't feel like you've told them too many things the drill is you know it's 100 throws in 3 minutes there's nothing to argue about there's nothing to clarify but the end result is that people end up having very crisp throws very accurate throws very hard straight you know throws which is what you want but you've never told them that 
right? You, you never at once said, I want you to throw hard, I want you to throw straight, I want you to throw crispy, because like, what do these things even mean? Um, and instead, all you've done is set this very, very simple constraint, everybody just goes and executes it. And over time, everyone just ends up being really good throwers, and they can't tell you why, and that's great. This so that's like kind that. of my ideal drill. Yeah, this almost sounds like the Leah DiBello thing, where like she sets the constraint for the business, and then everybody just figures out like, lean manufacturing because the, the constraints force it on them. We yeah, but like if you try, yeah. if you try to explain lean manufacturing, if you try to tell them this, this is what we're going to do. There's this like Japanese thing, all this history is amazing. No. People will just their brains will melt, right? Yeah. So you don't want to do that. You just want to set the constraint and then kind of leave it alone and let people do it. So the the constraint is the beauty of it, and it's really, really, really hard to pick the right constraint. I think that would be the number one difficulty, I would say. How do you know then? Or like just trial and error? Yeah, trial and error, you kind of get a taste Taste. for it. Yeah, but it's definitely a lot of like trial and error and learning along the way. Yeah, I've noticed this when I sort of like brainstorming exercise with you just out of fun, right? You could immediately say like, no, this doesn't feel right. This training that you suggested (laughs) probably (laughs) won't work. And I'm like, okay, there's some taste going on here that I don't know. (laughs) I guess to sort of close out this discussion, let's get back to the thing that you referred to very early on in in this conversation where you said playing to play versus playing to win. Or the actual phrase that you used that I opened up the piece on the blog was you said that make sure that you're playing the actual game not some game you've made up for yourself and let's talk about that for a bit because I think that was obviously I wrote a whole blog post about it so it's been quite influential to me and I think what you've done is you've put words around something that I've observed that I think anybody who has been obsessed with games or obsessed with sport would think about so yeah (laughs) How do you came up with that? Or what was the history there? To be fair, I came up with it with my friend Kuala Yang. We were reading this book. I can't remember the book. I think it's like How to Be Rich or something like that. Mm. And this guy talks about it a lot. And so I feel like he also put the words to the concept. But have to re- yeah, it's a, it's a very it's fun book. It. Yeah, it's yeah. recommended to me a few times. <laughs> so it's a, yeah. Yeah. Definitely, yeah, definitely read it. It's a quick, quick read, fun read. Yeah, I guess so for when it comes to Frisbee, Okay, so let's talk about, for example, that like really nice Japanese throw, right? The throw mm, itself mm, is really mm. beautiful and it serves a very clear purpose. And so a lot of people want to do it, not because it serves the purpose, but because it looks very cool, looks very beautiful. And so they spend years trying to develop this stupid throw, which is very hard to throw. I can't throw it. Oh, I definitely cannot throw it in a game. Maybe I will like try to throw it at training or something when I'm knocking around, but I wouldn't trust myself to throw it at a high-level game. And it takes, like I said, it takes years to develop it so that you can trustworthily, successfully throw it at a high-level game. So because it looks so beautiful and because it's like a very famous, prominent throw, a lot of people try to develop it. And sometimes it might not be necessary, right? So if you're an American and you already have the biggest, fastest receiver, you don't need to throw. You can just kind of close eyes, throw some crappy throw, and your big, bad receiver will just own everybody and go get the disc. But if you wanted to play some game that you've made up for yourself, then you might spend the two or three years it would take to develop that throw rather than play the game as it is, like play the actual game, which would be, you know, I have the best receiver in the world, for example. I'm just going to throw crazy shit at him or her and let them go and get it. And it doesn't matter how crappy my throw is because this person is really good. So if you're playing to play beautifully rather than to fully exploit your advantages, then I would say you're playing some game that you've made up for yourself. 
But having said that, and you and I have discussed this extensively also, like it's, <laughs> it tends to not be like the extremes, right? You, nobody really just plays the game specifically and exploits every single advantage perfectly. People tend to be in the middle. And there's lots of like, I want to play a certain way and play mm-hmm. a certain style that doesn't necessarily have an impact on winning or losing, but it's kind of my philosophy. And I don't know if I've ended up on anywhere, but for now, I mean, it's fine. <laughs> I'm also mm-hmm. like that. I definitely have a philosophy, you know, like, like what we were talking about, the life lessons thing. I don't think teaching life lessons has any impact on whether you win or lose. If anything, it's probably better to be a bit of an asshole and, you know, have poor spirit and bad sportsmanship because, you know, it's kind of unregulated. So for me, I probably err more towards the scrub side, the playing a game that you've made up for yourself. Yeah. Well, not to speak against that, I think focusing on life goals fit what you told me about the constraints you were under because you sort of said to me that there was no way you could have won the World Championships given the setup, given the cuts you were dealt, right? You were very pragmatic or realistic with what your goals were, which were, I don't know what it was, maybe position number seven or something like that. That wasn't winning the World Championships. And within that framework, if you're sort of realistic, like we're not going to be number one because it's last minute, it makes sense to be like, okay, so this is just the first try. Maybe we'll get better at the next World Championships, right? Then we will focus on winning. And so since this is the constraints, then it makes sense to teach life lessons because that's ultimately more valuable. I think about this quite a bit with debate. So I was, apart from very competitive judo player, I was competitive in debate as well. But then I said to a friend, because he went on to win championships at university level, and I stopped at university level, right? I, I just did high school. I said, I think I've learned enough useful skills from debate that will help me in real life. And then everything apart from that is just how to win. And I don't think the how to win bits are useful to real life. And I think that's something there as well. I think yes and no. So the how to win parts Mm. are useful because there's a level of sustained intensity that you need to bring to the table if you want to win, especially when it's at a highly competitive arena. And your ability to walk that line and walk that line for a long time without cracking, I think is invaluable. And you can definitely bring that to the way that you approach work and all that. Yeah, I think the other thing that makes this discussion sort of difficult, right, which we've, we've talked about as well, is there are aesthetic choices and ethical choices as well in the real world. So I think in my blog post, and this is sort of like a reflection that fell out of our discussions, was sometimes you want to play the more difficult game because it's better for the world to play the more difficult game. And I had another friend who said that if you treat life as a game, then an example would be he's an academic and some people play the publishing game because that's the way you get tenure. Mm. It's the sheer number of papers you publish, right? And he yeah. said that what some people do is they find one discovery and then they squeeze five papers out of it, which does nothing for the world, right? Yeah. But they say, that, oh, this is the rules of the game. This is how I'm going to get tenure. But actually, yeah. no, this is not how science is supposed to be done. Yeah, uh, which, is, yeah. which is why I think like that's the beauty of the self-governance thing. When you kind of propagate this idea of protecting the commons, like, people want to do it rather than try to, what you said, like squeeze every ounce because of this very arbitrary rule of that's the way you get tenure. Mm. Of course, in business, the sad thing is that it's not sad, it's just the reality of things, right? Like if they push a strategy, then you have no choice but to deal with the fact they're dealing with this strategy. You know? there's, there's still a referee in, in the world of business. <laughs> you yeah. just have to deal with it. Yeah. All right. I guess we're at 
time, maybe we'll close it out to talk a bit about this thing that you do and point people towards newsletter glue. So to sort of close out this conversation, this conversation is pretty much about pedagogy, but I want to let people know as well of this thing that you're doing, and then we'll end the conversation on that note. So Leslie, what is newsletter glue? <laughs> a newsletter glue is a WordPress plugin. Hmm. It lets you write newsletters like you write a blog post. So kind of similar to Substack, you're writing in a thing. It doesn't feel like you're writing in MailChimp or hmm. MailerLite or ConvertKit. And the upside to that is the WordPress block editor is really, really powerful. And it's a much better writing experience. And you get all the advantages of a blog for your newsletter. So like newsletters tend to be quite siloed. They appear in someone's mailbox and that's about it. You can't really do much else with it. Whereas if you approach newsletter writing like you would a blog, you get a nice archive and it's a public archive, it's online, everything is a specific link, so you can share the links for every single issue. We also have a show height feature because you're publishing things online and in your inbox you can choose what things go online, what things go in your inbox and so you can have like a special discount code or something or a special message to your readers Mm -hmm. if you subscribe and it just makes the newsletter experience both for yourself and for your subscribers more Mm -hmm. well-rounded. You can even restrict the content. You can pair us with a different plugin and you can restrict the content online. So there's a whole bunch of things that kind of open up to you once you approach your newsletter as a publication or as Mm. a blog as compared to if you're just thinking of it as a newsletter. So we enable all of those things. Right. And people who use Newsletter Glue, do they graduate from Substack to something like Newsletter Glue? Or what's the context there? Yeah, so that's that's quite a common flow. People kind of run up against the limitations of Substack. Either it's a design limitation or payments, you know, they want a specific membership style or something which Substack doesn't allow, or they want to own things. If not, it's going to be commoncog.substack.com and they want to <laughs> kind of own the thing a bit better. Then they move to WordPress where they can control everything. They own their content. They're not worried about the changes of the Substack platform. Yeah, so that happens often. And then also people who have already their businesses on WordPress. So they might be a real estate agent or a Mm. professional blogger or Mm. an agency. And they already work every day in WordPress, either on WordPress with the real estate or they build WordPress sites for the clients. And so they're already very familiar with WordPress and they don't want to be context switching between WordPress and MailChimp or WordPress and ConvertKit. They've already liked the way they set things up in WordPress. So we allow them to continue doing everything in WordPress. And because of the nature of WordPress, which is very extendable, people like to add lots of really specific different things, which they can do in WordPress. They can't do that in MailChimp. Our plugin lets them add all of these things and create like a more robust publishing platform that's highly specific and customized to their needs. Yeah. I think what's entertaining about this as well is there's these two worlds in your life, right? Where you're at world level ultimate player and then you're running this business and people don't actually know. The people in one world don't know about this other world. And when I met you, I actually met you because of your business, not because of the ultimate thing because I don't play ultimate and then we became friends and then I was mind blown by the depth of pedagogical thought that you have (laughs) so to listeners who sort of listening about this and thinking why is it so weird that there's this abrupt shift it's because this is the nature of (laughs) it it is not like some weird dichotomy this is actually how 
you run things as well, right? People don't know <laughs> that you are this amazing <laughs> ultimate coach in the background. So yeah, but let's, people, let's comment, yeah. right? I'm sure you I, yeah. have like all these crazy well, dichotomies. Because online is such a specific sliver of your life, right? And you can't just talk about a million things. It's not, it's hard I, to... I think maybe the difference between you and me is that I gush about judo a lot. <laughs> I can't control it. Even though I'm not actually that great a judo player anymore. I'm so rusty. 10 years I've not played, right? And you're still in the thick of things. And you don't you don't I'm, talk about... Oh yeah, okay. Well, 2016, fair. But also you were coaching as recently as 2020. And I feel like more people should know the kind of thought that you've put into the pedagogy of things because it is quite rare, I feel. Yeah. So where can people find you online? I guess the easiest is on Twitter. So I'm mm. at Leslie, L-E-S-L-E-Y underscore pizza, P-I-Z-Z-A on Twitter. So you can find me there. And my handle is Leslie Pizza on most places online. So if you just kind of Google that, you should be able to find me as well. And, and newsletterglue is newsletterglue.com. Yes. yes. And <laughs> your personal website, I believe, is leslie.pizza. And I'm going to link to that in the show notes as well. Well, we're at time. We've gone a bit over time, but I think it was worth it. Thank you so much for your time, Leslie. This was an honor. Thanks, Cedric. Always super fun talking to you. Bye. Bye.